This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Welcome to episode one of Reimagine Law for 2021. And Fran and I are really excited to let everyone know that with the support of the Society of Legal Scholars, we're going to be running episodes throughout this year. And the subject we're kicking off today is clinical legal education. Fran. Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Elaine Hall and Lauren Fisher to this episode. Um, Elaine Hall is a professor at Northumbria University within their law school and leads on the education and professional skills group as a research area and is also the editor of a free open access journal called the International Journal of Clinical Legal Education. Um, now, for our listeners who don't know, Northumbria have a really active and vibrant student law clinic within their university. Um, Lauren, lovely to have you with us as well. Lauren is a graduate of Northumbria Law School and worked in the student law clinic when she was there. Lauren works in a criminal solicitors firm at the moment and is about to start with the Crown Prosecution Service um, shortly in the coming weeks, I think. So welcome both of you to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Let's kick off. What is clinical legal education? That's the topic that we're covering today. That's actually a really difficult question as an opener. It's it's not kind of the underarm bowl that you might expect. At its essence, clinical legal education is about connecting formal uh, traditional legal education with the practice of the law. It can take so many different forms and, and it, it blooms in so many different corners of law schools. It can be assessed or not assessed. It can be voluntary or part of the curriculum. It can take the form of group work or individual work. There are so many aspects to it, which is why we have a whole international journal about it. And there's a, you know, an annual conference and lots of things that we're very excited about. For me, it because of my interest in professional learning, um, clinical education is what makes legal education connect with the needs of practice and the needs of clients so there's for me a really strong kind of moral dimension to having CLE in your university. I think of it less as a subject on a timetable and more as a method of learning so throughout our degree we do a lot of textbook learning, seminar learning, group work theory about law whereas the student law office at Northumbria kind of comes full circle so we're putting our education into practice so we get real clients we work in a little firm and depending on what discipline of the law you're in I was in the employment firm we get um, set up with a partner and we take our cases together so you essentially manage cases from the very first point of the client contact in the student law office up until the point that they have been advised and they're happy with the outcome. So yeah, I, I don't really see it as a subject in itself. I see it more as building on our learning of what we've already had and putting that into practice and gaining professional skills from that as well. Elaine, if we think of, of the range and all the different types, and you know, Lauren's given us a little bit of a flavor there, thinking about, you know, you're in a firm and you know you're really get, you're giving advice. What are some of the things that really you've seen work very well and almost the range that you've seen that's that you think really adds to students so i think one of the things that connects all forms of clinical legal education and the probably for me the the part of cle that has the most juice in it is um the connection to a real client and a real situation and that's twofold First of all, it's the fact that that is a real person um, often contacting you on one of the worst days of their life with a problem that needs solving within a time frame, um, 
probably a time frame that's a lot tighter than you would want to do it if you were doing it as a purely educational experience. Um, so you're really getting into the realities of working with public, working with their distress, working to a timetable that's actually enough so that you're giving advice or in some cases in our law firm providing full representation you know in a way that's actually good enough it, it meets a professional standard but also managing the client's expectations about what can be done I mean a lot of the work that we do is actually about explaining to people that there is not very much that we can do uh, and that's a, that's a really important part of the work as well the second bit is that in real problems, there are no legal disciplinary silos. People don't come to you and say, I think what I've got is a contract problem. Or, you know, or, or, you know, or they say they don't come with a housing problem. They come with a welfare benefits problem that is connected to the housing, that is connected to the education of their children, that is connected to uh, the disability rights that they haven't managed to claim yet. Colleagues at, at London South Bank, where they have a, a really excellent advice clinic, refer to it as the plastic bag problem that literally people come with completely unsorted documents that they don't fully understand and empty them out onto the table. And I think that that's true of pretty much all clinical legal education because real world problems don't align to academic disciplines. And that's what transforms the learning into uh, the professional practice. Elaine, that's really interesting. I think one of the things you've touched on there, and I think Lauren hinted at this as well, is that whole area of, yes, there's, the, as you say, the legal learning, there are no silos, but it's, a, it's actually dealing with a lot of emotion as well and almost learning to deal with that emotional side of, you say, almost the human relationship of client and advisor almost and, and, and managing that, which I guess must, you know, I think is great learning for people to do very early in their career as well. Yes, I would agree. I think that it's something that we need to think about as well. Again, I, I'm going to make this about the moral dimension of our work, but um, we know that lawyers have particularly high levels of dropout. They have very high levels of stress, of illness and other things related to the work. And I would suggest that that's because we don't adequately prepare them for this relational part of the work. We make them experts, but we don't make them experts in self-care and experts in their own relational um, skills. And it's not that everybody has to be a particular way, but we need to know how to continue to operate in the way that's most comfortable to each of us. Um, I want to pick up on your, your plastic bag point earlier. We often say at Queen Mary, you know, um, people don't have legal issues, they have life events. And how do you depict what the legal issue is or legal issues are from those life events? I know different people have different opinions on whether student law clinics should focus more on the education or more on the clients and the education kind of follows. I'm really interested to hear um, from both Elaine and Lauren what their views are on this kind of tension. I think it is a tension, but I think it can be resolved. Certainly, if you've got a process of supervision that's really focused on that hierarchy of need. So, you know, obviously the client and their best interests and their timescale is at the top of that hierarchy of need. If the students aren't able to do some aspect of the um, research or some, you know, they're taking forever perhaps to formulate a letter or to, or to decide how to respond. Sometimes the supervisor, as in practice, uh, with a trainee or with a more junior colleague would need to step in and say, okay, we don't have time for you to learn this right now. Here's what it looks like. And once we've advised the client, we're going to circle back to look at what those steps would be so that I'm essentially going to scaffold you 
to the to the answer but i'm going to take the time to go back and go through the steps with you so that next time you can do it more independently and i think that's how you bring those two things together i think it, sometimes where um education versus um client need is is kind of more difficult is where a clinic is devoted to only perhaps one particular issue um, and I've seen this particular sometimes where uh, there's been crisis several of my colleagues uh, in Italy who run immigration clinics during the kind of mass um, immigration panics and problems that have been having happening over the last few years have actually had to say to students we no longer have time to take you through we actually just need you to be you know triage workers and to take statements and that's actually all we can do because we're completely overwhelmed. Um, and interestingly, that fits into the discussion we were having about the different models of clinic, you know, whether there are in-house academics who are also solicitors or barristers who are working with the students or whether there are external volunteers in law firms and chambers coming to supervise the students um, and how that setup interrelates with, with that tension. Lauren, just to bring you in on the question there about the tension. Yeah, so exactly what Elaine said, we are supervised in the student law office, we're not left to just go free reign. But having said that, a lot of our learning comes from the fact that our supervisors use a more non-directive approach of how they manage us, they don't point us in the right direction. They let us discover it for ourselves, do our own research, develop the case, write letters, do emails, make the phone calls, whatever it might be, you know, and then go to the supervisors and say, this is what I found, this is what I believe the client's case to be this is what I think our next step should be the supervisor will then approve what we've done if it's correct if not they'll say well have you looked at this statute or have you developed the case law enough have you asked them x y and z they don't hold our hands but they make sure we don't step out of line and also when it comes to the supervisors nothing leaves that office unless it has been approved by our supervisors so whether it be a letter an email we send it to them they double check it then they okay it and we can send it away even things like phone calls whether it be a phone call to say hi can you come into the office on a wednesday or hi we've received a bit of an update on the case just wanted to give you a call about it we plan out what we're going to say before we take anything to the client so in that sense nothing that i told any of my clients was any different to what my supervisor paul who was my supervisor in the employment firm would have told the client he okayed everything and i think everything that i delivered to the client would have been the same as what paul would have delivered to the client had he done it on his own and equally in saying that our learning happens a lot behind closed doors we have firm meetings we have um, meetings between our partners we have meetings between our supervisors our clients aren't sitting in that office with us while we're saying oh i don't i don't know what i'm supposed to be doing or help they don't see any of that they see the professional sides of when we turn up in a suit and we're like oh hello like my name's lauren yep having a great day even though i've probably been crying three hours before about a dissertation topic they don't see that so i really believe that we deliver a professional service arguably lauren there's more checks happening in terms of the professional level because it's the student the student's partner and the supervisor than were it in practice i was just going to say as well fran and and, and lauren i mean what a great one, well, Elaine, as well. You know, what a great method is. You know, I love the idea of, you know, the non-directive approach. So actually, you learn by doing, as you say, you learn by having a go yourself. You know, all the best supervisors I always knew in, in the firms I worked in, absolutely with that. You know, it wasn't the micromanagement. It was more actually, 
okay, here's what we're trying to achieve. Off you go, have a go at it, you know, under supervision and so the risk is managed, but absolutely let you learn by doing it. It's a lovely way to do it. Absolutely. Very good. The legal sector is changing a lot at the moment. We often think about what's the future of legal education and how does that need to look? Um, I mean, if we were to look forward a bit, um, Elaine, I'll come to you first. Um, how does How does clinical legal education fit into the world of the future lawyer and, and what we need to prepare them for and the education we need to give them to prepare them for the world of the future? Again, question that I could talk about for about four or five hours. Thanks for that, Nigel. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was an yeah, it's incredibly okay, okay. question, Elaine. But I'm, anyway, I'm going to break it down a little bit. First of all, I'm going, to, I'm going to acknowledge that quite a lot of people who do law degrees are not going to be lawyers. Um, really of any kind. Point well made. Um, yeah. So I think that's an important thing to say. But I think that the, the clinical legal work that we do is actually a huge employability boost to uh, to young people going into any kind of professional um, career. Sometimes people make an argument against clinic because not everyone's going to be a lawyer. I think that actually the opposite is true, that having more clinic is better for people. It also really does sort out, um, if you do the student law office and you hate it, then you can decide not to be a solicitor or a barrister before you spend any more money on trying to do that um, and go sideways into something else. Um, the, the future of legal education, therefore, is, is about um, producing graduates who have a legal framework for understanding the world. So the other kinds of clinical legal education that, uh, that we haven't really talked about yet, particularly things like street law or policy shops, um, you know, working on legal tech and, um, you know, developing ways in which you can kind of speed up people's access to justice uh, or reimagine re um, the justice system altogether. So those forms of clinical legal education where the client might not be the person with a plastic bag, but might be a lot of clients who've experienced an injustice. So we do a lot of work on, uh, you know, historical abuse cases and, and criminal appeals, things like that. But we also do work um, within the student law office on policy, uh, on the development of work around. Recently, we've been doing stuff around domestic violence, um, particularly in the time of COVID. And um, colleagues of mine have been doing some absolutely amazing work there. And the students who are working with them on that get a real insight into, you know, the lawyer as activist. Uh, the lawyer as a political animal, political agent, um, the lawyer as kind of concerned citizen, all of those things which I think are really, really important. Um, I think inevitably the whole business of how the, how the law is changing, you know, who gets to do bits of law, a lot of those sort of changing legal markets. In, in universities, we are reacting to that. Um, on the whole. Sometimes perhaps we come up with innovations that are then taken up in practice, but most of the time we're trying to react and prepare. So we're inevitably going to be a bit behind. But I think that's been the case since, you know, Bologna had the first law course. Again, I think if we think about kind of core skills, transferable skills and the legal sensibility, or every course has to have whatever the next thing is in it. Yeah. And some courses are going to have those and they're going to be brilliant. And people who sit on that legal tech boundary in terms of their interest can go to those courses and do those things. And somebody who wants to go and you know, work on an innocence project will choose a university where that's the clinical work that's done. Um, you know, I think the variety yeah. is what's rich about CLE. Um, and I think, you know, because it has to be a passion project for the academics who run it, it yes. is more work than doing a standard module. 
uh, it costs the university more than running a standard module. Um, so it, it needs, in order for that supervision to work, that balance between the educational and the commitment to the client, it needs to be something that people really care about. Yeah, very good. No, I completely agree. And I think one thing you, you mentioned earlier was this whole thought of the breadth of skill set, as, as you say, you know, irrelevant, actually, of the career path you're taking. And, you know, I wrote some blogs over the last few years when I've, I've done some thinking on career paths. And it seemed to me that the skills to be adaptable and actually the breadth of skills that, you know, you've said it here, you know, the non-directive asking good questions, actually really tuning in with your clients and actually perhaps knowing about understanding about their world and being interested in their world, you know, whether it's someone, as you say, um, Lauren, coming to the, you're advising from whatever situation they're in versus advising big corporate. It's still about being interested in their world, I think, and actually sort of stepping outside ourselves. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what Lauren thinks she learned from engaging in the student law clinic. What particular skills or attributes? So honestly, the entire year was a big learning curve. From the first case I ever took to the last case of the year, the difference in just the way I behaved, in how quick I could produce work, in my relationship with my supervisor was the biggest just professional change I could have experienced. And I think for any sort of clinical legal education it is invaluable for the future of lawyers um, essentially in that year's worth of experience I learned more than what I ever did in any sort of week placements in any law firms that I secured work experience in it's difficult to already get work experience in law firms so I think to have a university that provides it is great in terms of bulking up CVs having things to talk about in interviews everything like that but also I would argue that the SLO provides more in terms of you experience things from the admin work, opening the case files, communication with the receptionist and how, oh, you know, there's a voicemail for you. Everything like that you don't experience and there's no other way to experience it other than being in that legal clinic. Even, you know, we touched on the rapport with clients and the relationships with clients dealing with difficult problems. All of those skills I took away with me into my future in law firms or what I've been doing for, the, you know, almost half a year now and I mean naturally interviewing someone in a nice posh law office of nice window doors is very different to the interviews that I do in police cells but the backbone of both applies equally you know the preparation the relationship the understanding the empathy listening taking instructions action in their instructions all of that I've carried with me from the student law office but just in a different environment and also, I think in terms of learning by doing, that's my way of learning. All through uni, we learned about, look, you know, fantastic and interesting cases. But, you know, if we take one, um, Donahue and Stevenson, a very famous case, when we learned about that, we learned about the legal principles, we learned about the case facts. We didn't learn about the practical itch issues, such as, I don't know, Donahue calling her, her solicitor and saying, you know, where's my case? Or what's happening with my case? Or Donahue's solicitor, what notes they took during the first interview of Donahue? We didn't hear about any of that. And I think now coming into the legal world, had I not have experienced that in the student law office, I would have been thrown into the deep end because it is tough. Not necessarily learning the law but the admin side the people side the professionalism side the relationship with your colleague side that is the biggest sort of um aspect which will make sure that you succeed in what you're doing 
And Lauren, I think you've summed up what makes clinics so unique. Um, there's one last point I just want to touch upon with Elaine before we move to practical actions. Um, Elaine, I know there's some research that's come out of, of Northumbria University about the impact that student law clinic work has on university students' academic or traditionally academic, should I say, studies. Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about that. Yes, we, because um, all of our students um, who who do clinic um, we have a, a really interesting data set that most universities don't have. Internationally, clinic is, if it's a module at all, it's an option. Um, if it's if it's a it, there, it's it's often a voluntary thing. Perhaps people have to apply for it. Perhaps there's a, a degree of selection. Understandably, because these are universities, that selection process is principally based on how well people have done previously. So when you look at who's in clinic globally, it tends to be students who are previously very high performing. So then when we're talking about the impact of student of clinic on students, we're looking at uh, a self-selecting group. So we can't say much about how clinic has changed them because they wanted to do clinic in the first place. Um, and a group that were already very high performing. So there's not a lot of headroom, even if clinic does make them better at things, there's not a lot of percentage to show that. We were able, however, to look at three cohorts of our students going through from the first year to the fourth year of our degree and looking at all the clinical experience that they had. I won't bore you with all the chi-squares and the data dredging that we did, but our, what we realized was that clinic makes students who were perhaps performing at about a 2-2, um, particularly at a low 2-2, more, more confident and more competent and not just in clinic. So we were looking at students who were having clinical experience in one year and then going on to really excel in clinic the following year, which is a kind of a, oh, well, yes, you, you might predict that that's not a particularly random hypothesis. However, those students were also doing really well in academic subjects, in, you know, perhaps quite recherche subjects, um, you know, that we have some very small options, very niche things um, to do with space law, they were also doing much better than you'd predict based on their previous GPA in their dissertation. And, you know, that that kind of lone wolf, lots of writing, lots of traditional legal research skills. Again, you wouldn't necessarily predict that being in clinic would um, would improve your performance there. So we started to say, OK, so actually, is there a moral case? for clinic being available to everybody, seeing as, as Lawrence just said, it's very hard to get work experience. It's particularly very hard to get work experience if currently your GPA is not in the top 10% of your year. Um, so if we're giving this kind of experience to all students and boosting everyone's performance through this, that's a, that's a stronger argument for having clinic. The other thing that kind of sits with that is the way in which supervisors think, report back on their students. And we looked at a lot of um, the mid-year appraisals and we found that students with very, very high grades weren't necessarily the ones who were doing very well at mid-year appraisals. So if you, you, know, you want to make the argument that we want the best students for our clinic, so therefore we're selecting the students with the highest GPA, that's not necessarily a correlation. You might not necessarily get the best students for your clients and for the clinical work by using that as a selection criteria. So there's kind of a lot of really interesting data that's come out of that, which for me, obviously, as an advocate of CLE is to say, we should have CLE much more embedded across our 
programs, it should be an opportunity that's available to as many people as possible. And we should be recognising it as something that benefits everybody. I am firmly in the camp of believing that CLE promotes diversity within the ultimately within the profession, because it does so within the law schools. I think it's the way in which students change their views of themselves through clinic that's the most critical, uh, that they start to see themselves as that successful potential future person rather than as that person who's just kind of scraping along. I was just going to add on that point, um, Elaine, there's, there's some really interesting research around, as you say, around personality and the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and actually needing to edit the self story we tell ourselves is actually one of the best ways through doing these experiences and building the confidence and Lauren, as you say, for being thrown in at the deep end, but then all the things, all those skills that you've built. Wow. You know, what I mean, and then you think, no, I can do that. That's a really tricky thing to do. But I know I can do that because I've had three goes at it. I've improved throughout the year. I've learned lots of these skills. You know, and I, I, I'm 100 times better than I was at the beginning. As I say the story to yourself becomes something very different. Anyway, sorry, Elaine, it just triggered a thought there. That whole thing of the story we tell ourselves, really interesting stuff around personality and identity. Right, let's move on to practical actions. We always like to leave our listeners with at least two things that they can go away and practically do to look at the topic we've been covering in more detail. Nigel, the first thing that strikes me is that there has recently been a report from an organisation, a charity called Law Works, mm. all about yeah. the different amounts of clinical legal education and the different types of clinical legal education that are happening within different law schools. Um, one of the actions I'd like to give listeners is if we put this link in our show notes to go away and have a look and to have a look in particular at the different quotes that come from the students who've engaged in those clinical legal education programs. And Fran, another one I was thinking of, um, you and I have talked about occasionally, is if we think of all of our listeners scattered in, in you know, all around the country, and we were, we were trying to think between us, of, uh, I, I remember, of how could people engage locally and and you came up with the thought of actually the Citizens Advice website as well and some of the volunteering opportunities sometimes that happen there, because that could be something they could they could look at locally, I, you know, as you said to me. Absolutely. Um, I can see from looking at their website, even as I sit here, things like volunteering at the witness service and other practical opportunities that they can get involved with. So let's pop the link into the show notes as well. Um, for listeners to have a look at. Thanks so much um, for listening into this episode on clinical legal education and thank you to our guests. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on and don't forget to subscribe. It's free and then all episodes will um, automatically come to your device. Thanks ever so much and we look forward to you listening next time.